Okay, it is Wednesday morning, the seventh night of Hanukkah, December 16th. Um, and I'm here with Marie. Hey, Marie. Hi, Mishi. How are you doing? Good. So, can you say where we are? We are standing in the arrivals hall at Ben Gurion Airport, and we're waiting for Tomer Appelbaum and Yael Banaya from Haaretz. And the arrivals hall looks very empty. Right. There is literally nobody coming out. It's empty. Mostly workers. And a lot of flights from Dubai on the screen. Yeah, that's a very new development. In fact, it's quite amazing. Like half of the flights on the screen currently are from Dubai. Is there no corona in Dubai? I have no idea. I hope not. We waited around, marveling at the amount of flights from the UAE. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ten flights from Dubai. Isn't that surprising, though, that literally half of the flights are from Dubai? Uh, it's not surprising when you know Israelis and how much they love to travel. Like, that's the first opportunity they get to, to go to Dubai. And they're, they're doing it. Yeah. Maybe not surprising at all. <laughs> not surprising, but very new. Then Marie, our newest producer, spotted them. Tomer, tall in worn-out jeans and one of those flimsy blue surgical masks. <laughs> uh, hello, I'm Tomer. I'm a photographer. I'm 32. And I've been a, a photojournalist for arts for the last 16 years. And Yael, curly-haired, almost half Tomer's size, with a much fancier cloth mask. Okay, my name is Yael Benaya. I'm uh, 26 years old. Uh, and uh, Where are you from? I'm from Tel Aviv. Once a week, every week, Tomer and Yael drive to the airport. But they aren't platinum frequent flyers or billionaire jet setters. In fact, they don't even bring a suitcase. Instead, Tomer carries two camera bags. And Yael, all she has is a notebook and a pen. Together, they are the duo behind one of Israel's most popular newspaper columns, Haaretz Weekend Magazine's Flights. Yeah, Flights. Uh, in, in Hebrew, it's Tisot Nichnasot, Tisot Yatsot. And can you tell us a little bit about the column? Yes, we come to the airport every week and we randomly speak to someone who's landing and someone uh, who's departing. And uh, we're finding someone that um, can speak with us and want to tell us about his story. As the photographer, are you looking for like interesting faces or people wearing interesting clothes? You do like some sort of profiling. So like uh, somebody that wears like uh, shining colors, somebody that says like, I want the world to see me in a way, you know? So the chance that uh, it will be cooperative will be bigger. With that, we join Tomer and Yael on their hunt for interviewees. Shalom. Hi. Sorry, do you speak Hebrew? Great. English? No. No. Thank you. Shalom. Hello. Sorry. Do you speak Hebrew? English? Ivrit. Hi. Shalom. I'm Tomer, and Yael. We're from As Tomer made his elevator pitch, most people looked pretty skeptical. I think that guy was a, a, a football player long ago. Shalom. Hi. Shalom. Sorry, do you speak Hebrew English? So we are now 0 for 4. Like, not all people are cooperative, you know. Shalom. Eventually, they did end up finding a willing couple, the Rubinchiks. Lea. 74-year-old Lea and 73-year-old Lev. Originally from St. Petersburg, now living in Nariya. Tomil's trying to convince them to take off their mask for the picture. Lea and Lev had just landed from Bulgaria, where they'd spent the last seven months skiing and picking mushrooms. They spoke at great length about climate change. Elon Musk. Elon Musk. Elon Musk. Learning Hebrew. 
גאדג'טס. גאדג'טים, גאדג'טים, מיליונים, וצריך ללמוד משהו חדש בלי סוף. 3D, 4D, אני לא... And Lev shared his conviction that life really only begins in retirement. From there, the conversation kind of meandered around. Till Yael asked one final question. Looking back at life, she said, would you do anything differently? Maybe we would have had more kids, Lev answered with a bit of sadness in his eyes. Yeah, they agreed. We were always just too busy. And it's moments like that, really, that made me and so many other Israelis fall in love with this column. It's a very popular column, so why do you think that uh, readers find it interesting? Um, I think everybody has like this story to tell. I think people like to hear about regular people. They're curious to hear people that they will never speak with them, you know. And the, the thing that's special about the column, I think that it's that the people are not like they are special but they are not special I mean they are not like someone that has this uh, amazing achievements or, or like did something great or won a novel or something there are like regular people and each of them has this kind of personal story you see a person in the street and, and you wonder you know what what he keeps inside of him he, he has a story you know you feel like a, there's a story to want to a lot of people carry a story that wants to be told inside of them, you know, in a way. So, speaking of stories that want to be told, hey, I'm Ishi Harman, and this is Israel's Story. Now, in a normal year, many of you would be listening to this episode at an airport, or on a plane, or during a really long car ride. But 2020 was most definitely not a normal year. So in our episode today, Round Trip, we bring you two less-than-normal travel stories. Stories of people going back home, but doing so having gained some sort of new understanding, new appreciation of the place they're from. Having done this for so long, do you see a difference between people leaving Israel and people coming back to Israel? I can say that the... The borders are so open and you see such a variety of people going and, and living and coming and, 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 and moving. And it's uh, moving. <laughs> this location, it's very interesting. This like in-between space, like in-between being abroad that, to being in Israel, uh, being home, being away. I mean, this space, it's like uh, this limbo space that, that allows them to tell something that in, in a different location they won't be thinking about or, or like I think it put them like in a very special position that makes them um, realize things about their life, about their plans, about the things they did, uh, this, the, about the thing they would like to do. Two years ago, Chaya Gilboa, her husband Marik Stern, and their two young sons, Michael and Avshalom, left Jerusalem and relocated to San Diego where Marik was offered a postdoc position, and Chaya landed a great job at an amazing foundation. They quickly settled into the SoCal lifestyle, and the boys loved their new kindergarten friends. Everything seemed good. Then COVID arrived, and with it a heightened sense of foreignness and longing. Act 1. Sia. Here's Chaya Gilboa. March 26, 2020. It's 5.30 a.m. when the Uber driver calls. He's already outside, 10 minutes early. I accidentally knock over a water bottle as I scramble to get ready. A sharp sound rings out across the house. Mike wakes up and stops me at the door, placing a tired hand on my shoulder. I know what he's about to say, so I get ahead of it and cut him off. I'm in a hurry, I tell him. If I don't leave now, I'll hit traffic and the doctor won't let me in if I'm late. Americans, you know. He wants to tell me, again, that he doesn't think that the test is necessary. 
but he understands from my expression that I've already made up my mind. Okay, he says, call me when you're done. I step outside. It's late March in Southern California, and there is a cool breeze carrying raindrops, sharp as pins. I zip up my coat and slip into the car. The driver looks up and in a foreign accent, Mexican maybe, says, are you ready, ma'am? I see you are going to the hospital. It's not a long drive, 20 minutes max. I lean against the window and exactly as it was with the test for Avshalom four years ago and the test for Michael three years before that, I'm thrown back to the memory of that morning in Jerusalem in 2012. Pregnant for the first time, lying in a tiny room in Hadassah Mount Scopus, hearing many words float around me. You're still young, the anonymous voices are saying. There is no reason not to try again right away. And after that, nothing. Darkness. All I remember is that my stomach felt empty and my heart numb. Where are you from? The Uber driver asks, bringing me back to the San Diego freeway. Israel. I reply, oh, I'm Christian. He's excited and looks back at me in the mirror. My dream is to go there. Have you been to Jerusalem? I smile and imagine the traffic on Gaza Street. Bibi's noisy convoy that would wake us every morning. The sounds of prayer coming from my neighbor's apartment. A loud and beloved city, so far away from me right now. Yes, I almost whisper. I was born there. When I enter the clinic's waiting room, my name is already flashing above the receptionist's desk. I shell out the $1,000 deductible, and I'm directed toward an examination room. There, two nurses welcome me with polished smiles. I lie on the bed. No husband? One of them asks before closing the door. Yes, husband, I reply. But we don't have family here. So we stay at home with our two other sons. A few moments later, the doctor enters and takes a quick glance at my chart. I look at him and smile to myself. He's not American. What luck. He turns to me and says in broken Hebrew, Shalom, I am an Iranian Jew. I have been to Tel Aviv many times. Lo of Yerushalayim, rak Tel Aviv. Don't like Jerusalem, just Tel Aviv. I laugh. I see it's your fourth pregnancy, he continues. But you only have two children. I nod. He understands. The ultrasound begins, and there she is. Stomach, head, hands, moving slowly, like a little eel in the water. The doctor holds a probe in one hand and the needle in the other, looking for a place where he can puncture without harming the baby. I shut my eyes tight. I know I can't move, even a bit. I wait and wait, but the pain doesn't come. The room falls completely silent. After a few long seconds, he finally says, I'm sorry, I can't do it today. You see this? He points at a cluster of small white dots on the screen. There is a tiny tear here in the placenta. Nothing to worry about. It happens. But it will be safer to wait and let it heal first. I'd say 10 days. I'm disoriented. After all the endless fights with Mark, who was against the test to begin with. After the super early wake up, the flashbacks to Hadassah. After all that, now I have to wait another 10 days? I get dressed and return to the waiting room. The doctor's already there, explaining to the receptionist why it wasn't possible to complete the test. He tells her that I need to return on April 6. She checks and politely replies that April 6 is completely booked. But he insists, it must be the 6, he says. After that, it won't be possible to do it. The pregnancy will be too far along. He smiles at me and says in Hebrew, See you in 10 days. I need to order an Uber, so I pull out my phone, which had been on silent. Five missed calls, all from Marek. I call him back and hear the boys yelling in the background. What's going on? I'm immediately worried. Why aren't they at school? Don't ask, Marek answers. They canceled school because of Corona. Can you believe it? After we made fun of everyone in Israel for being so hysterical? Anyway, how was your test? (laughs) 
A new week has dawned in the era of COVID-19. March 30th, 2020. Infections across the nation are near 160,000 and still rising. The kids have been home for three days already. That's awesome! Mainly glued to the TV. The university has also shut down, and Mark moved to teaching on Zoom. Uh, go ahead and mute your microphones. I was going to say, too, that ding that keeps going off, I think only you can turn it off. Um, I'm conducting my own meetings virtually from the living room. I think I found it. Nope, that didn't help. Today, we're probably going to hear some dings. We order um, toilet paper on Amazon, but it will take 35 days because everyone is panicking. How many people die of the flu? Meanwhile, Trump is reciting the number of mortalities from last year's flu. You know, I think we're going to be in great shape. But again, a lot of people get the coronavirus and they get better. At our team meetings, we talk about the long lines outside gun stores in L.A. and about the program for the homeless that we only just started and will now probably have to put on hold because of what seems like an inevitable lockdown. We have to go back to Israel, I tell Marek at night, after the kids have gone to bed. What are you talking about? He yells out. Everything's still open here. The stores, the playgrounds, the nature reserves. The medical system is excellent, and the numbers are low in comparison to Israel. But I insist. Marek, I say slowly, we need to go back. For days, my phone has been pinging nonstop. Each morning, I wake up to dozens of SMS from Israel. Friends tell me about the lockdown. My brother and sisters are scared. I even receive a WhatsApp message from the OBGYN who delivered my two boys, advising me to get on a plane and come back home. But where will we go? Mark argues. We don't have an apartment. And even if we rent a place, we sold all our furniture before we moved here. Do you really want to arrive and quarantine in some depressing third-floor walk-up in Katamon with no balcony? At least here, we have a big house, backyard, the beach nearby. But I am adamant. Maybe it's a pregnancy. Maybe it's the terrible feeling of foreignness. But I just know, deep down, that I want to go home. April Fool's Day, 2020. I am so sorry, ma'am. I'm sorry, ma'am. The woman replies laconically, yet again. Could you say that again? Sorry, my ass. I didn't get that. I'm furious. Can I help you schedule a different flight? And what's worse is that I can't even tell if I'm talking to a human being or a robot. Does it really matter? Marik, a shout from the kitchen, with the representative slash machine still on the line. I'm beginning to lose my patience with you. They cancel the flight we booked for April 29th. Come quickly. Marik rushes in white as a ghost. So what should I do? I ask the representative desperately. She starts answering and I relay the info to Marek in real time. She said that there are only three more flights, almost entirely sold out. She's got a few tickets left on April 4th, but those are the last open seats and we need to buy them right now. Like right now. Let it go, Marek pleads. Let's stay. It'll be fine. This corona, I'm telling you, it'll all come down. He pauses for a second and then says, You understand that the flight's in four days, right? How the hell are we supposed to pick up the whole house with no help and you being pregnant? I look back at him, determined. No, I say, we're leaving this place. We'll pack, sell, throw out, whatever we need to do. I want to go home. Okay, I said to the representative, we'll take that flight. April 4th, 2020. Twelve suitcases are standing in a row like soldiers in our living room. I weigh them one by one on our bathroom scale. They are all too heavy. We leave for the airport in less than eight hours, and the entire house is still upside down. Meanwhile, the boys are running around between the suitcases. I still haven't told them that they are not going to have a chance to see their friends before leaving. The truth is, no one wants to come and say goodbye because of corona. Mark comes home from the post office, where he had gone to send boxes to Israel. I see him park. Why on earth are the boxes still in the car? There is no global shipping service right now, he says as I walk outside. So what do we do? I ask, tears of fatigue already welling up in my eyes. We're only allowed 12 suitcases, and even that's pushing it. It isn't even a matter of paying for overweight. They'll just have to stay in your office for now, he says, 
And in a month or two, when this whole thing blows over, someone can send them to us. At 4 p.m., we lock the door for the last time and get into the car. Michael is crying because I took away the iPad. Avshalom is screaming that he wants his bottle, but I have no idea where I packed it. We really need to leave for the airport, and I can't start looking. So instead, I strap them both in and sit down next to Malik. The boys are wailing in the back seat, and all I want is a quiet moment to say goodbye. To get one last look at this wonderful house that was our refuge from the loneliness we felt outside. The house that brought the four of us so close together that I somehow agreed to get pregnant again. I want a moment to say thank you for everything I experienced here over the past two years. But now it starts the engine and off we are. I turn around to Michael and comfort him once more, just as the school psychologist suggested. Michael Ush, I say with all the tenderness I can summon. I know you wanted to say goodbye to Spencer and Isaac and Kai, but because friends can't see each other right now, we can't do that. But I promise you that as soon as we get to Israel, we'll call them on WhatsApp and you can talk to them. He looks at me, a boy of just six years old, and I don't know whether he's tired or sad or if he even understands the meaning of what I just said. As we get on the freeway, I receive a text. It's Leslie, the director of Michal and Avshalom School. She's asking if, on the way to the airport, we could stop by the McDonald's parking lot. That seems a bit weird, but she explains that there's something waiting there for the boys. Mike and I smile at each other. Cute Americans. It's probably some nice balloons. Since the McDonald's is just a small detour, Mark takes the exit. We enter the parking lot and can't believe our eyes. All of Michael and of Shalom's friends are there. Literally everyone. The teachers too, the parents, all sitting, each family on the trunk of their car, in a long line on both sides of the drive-through lane. Mike starts to drive slowly between them and opens the windows. Michael, stunned, unbuckles himself and stands up with half his body out the window. All their friends are waving at us, blowing air kisses and holding up farewell signs. We pass from one family to the next, and Michal shrieks, Spencer, Josh, Aiden, Lenny, look, Mom, they all came to say goodbye. Avshalom is also overwhelmed. His gaze darts between the children, waving excitedly. He raises a hand to wave back, but his expression freezes, and his hand doesn't move. His teacher leaves her car, and despite the explicit social distancing guidelines, comes to the window and gives him a big hug. I grab Marek's hand. Tears run down my cheeks. There are tears of gratitude and also sadness for the community we were leaving behind. A community that didn't let my children leave without saying a proper goodbye. Good afternoon, passengers. Two connections and 12 suitcases later, we arrive at a New York airport so completely deserted that even the Starbucks is closed. We have a seven-hour layover and there is nowhere to buy a cup of coffee. After what seems like an eternity, check-in is finally announced. They let us board first, together with the other families with small kids. We settle in for the last leg of the journey. When we get off this plane, we'll be home. It's hard to believe. We fasten our seatbelts, and the pilot introduces himself. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to United Airlines, flight 2453 to Tel Aviv. The skies are clear, and we expect a smooth ride. We will arrive in Tel Aviv tomorrow, April 6th, at noon Israel time. Have a great flight, and thanks for choosing United. April 6th? Hmm, I said to myself. <gasps> April 6th, the amniocentesis, I had completely forgotten. Once we land, we'd all go into two weeks of mandatory isolation. And after that, it will be too late. Oh, how did I forget? Avshalom falls asleep on me. Michel holds on tight to the robot he got from Spencer. The flight attendant signals for me to turn off my phone. I place one hand on my belly and the plane takes off. חיה גלבוע, 
Chaya is a social activist and the executive director of the Jerusalem Philanthropic Initiatives. She also teaches gender in Talmud and has the most amazing mane of red curly hair you'll ever see in your life. Most importantly, however, on July 1st, 2020, Chaya gave birth to a beautiful daughter, Imri Gilboa Stirn, at Hadassah and Karim. We'll be right back. And now, back to our episode. Make-believe, of course, isn't just for kids. Our next story is about six Israelis who spent 11 days crammed into a small container in the middle of the Negev desert, pretending to be on Mars. But when it was time to return back to Earth, well, it took some getting used to. Here's Zev Levi with Act 2, Permission to Land. Human settlement on Mars is not science fiction. It's absolutely realistic. Humanity is going to travel to Mars in the next decade. I think we're paving the road right now mm-hmm. for Mars colonization. One of the ways we prepare for Mars is to test things on a simulated Mars mission in an analog environment. That means that we simulate all the mission aspects of going to Mars. We are here in the desert of Israel. We are testing a simulated Mars mission together with DMARS. Israel's DMARS program. DMARS, DMARS. DMARS, a space simulation center working closely with the Israeli Space Agency. This is the first ever extraterrestrial simulation and center of its kind here in the Holy Land. We are trying to research the life of the first crew to land on Mars. Yes, they'll even wear spacesuits the whole time. Can you please introduce yourself, however you want to be introduced? That's a big question. <laughs> yeah, take a moment. Noah Breuer, superstar. I don't know. Uh... <laughs> That's a great intro. <laughs> Except it's wrong. Um... Before Noah Breuer moved to Mars, she lived in a cozy apartment in Jaffa. My parents are computer engineers, and my brothers followed them at the same profession. So, growing up, expectations were always high. I'm kind of like the black sheep of the family. I mean, I adore my parents. They're the best people in the world. But I had a lot of pressure having really good grades, and if you got like 98 at a test, then it's like, what happened to the rest of the two points? She had dreams of becoming a professional ballerina. But even though she came pretty close, it didn't end up happening. And that's how, at the age of 28, just a few years after finishing her studies in agricultural sciences, she found herself grinding away at a boring desk job. Mainly, though, she daydreamed about her favorite way to unwind, baking. I couldn't wait to get home to bake something. One day, she was watching baking videos and scrolling through Facebook. In a 375 oven, these only take about 15 minutes. When she saw a small ad that said they are looking for female analog astronauts. No experience required. No experience required. I had no idea what it was. And I was like, I'll say yes to this. Why not? I'm totally an analog astronaut. No experience. Noah knew almost nothing about the project, which had a weird but enticing name, DMARS. Reading on, she found out that the goal was to see how a crew of Earthlings would work and live together in a tiny enclosure in an unforgiving terrain. Sort of like Big Brother, the science version. Six amateur astronauts, 11 days in Israel's rocky Ramon crater. The mission? The purpose of this mission? The main challenge? Running psychological experiments on themselves. To study the effect of stress and isolation. Noah applied, along with 56 other wannabe analog astronauts. Two years and many team-based exercises later, she got the call. She had been selected. 
the day before the mission. I started organizing my bag and I panicked. What if I'm gonna hate everyone and everyone's gonna hate me and what am I gonna do there for so long? And being like, shit, what did I say yes to? Nevertheless, bright and early the following day, March 3rd, 2019, Noah got into a car and headed towards the dry red sands of Israel's Negev desert. Or in other words, Mars. And just like that, she reached her new home, the shiny white Dimas habitat, about the size of three parking spaces and made out of a modified shipping container. Shaped like a diamond, it had a canvas roof with transparent windows to let the starlight in. You go in and you see our spacesuits in the corner and you see a really small kitchen in front of you. There's a big table with like a computer, a incubator, biological hood, and the sleeping pods are just like around the corner. And that's basically it. That's like the entire habitat. Cramped, efficient, functional. In an endless expanse of sand and rock and sky, this would be Noah's entire world for the next 11 days. Shared, that is, with five near strangers. So, my name is Iftah Kuriel. Hey, my name is Kamelia. My name is Salman Abdullah. They came from all over the country. They were students and parents, Jews and Arabs, biologists, diplomats, even a powerhouse CEO. But this wasn't some sort of summer camp for adults or extravagant live-action role-playing game. Instead, scientists around the world were relying on them to experience what life would be like, stranded 225 million kilometers from Earth. If any of their gear were to break, they'd have to fix it. If food or water ran low, they'd have to be stricter about rationing. And if they missed home, well, they'd just have to deal with it. After all, they were on Mars. The only contact they would have would be with Mission Control, otherwise known as a small office at the Weizmann Institute of Science in Rehovot, 180 kilometers away. And even with them, communications would simulate a real Mars mission, meaning there'd be a 10-minute delay each way. The crew settled in and shut the door. Their task was to see what would happen next. Throughout the mission, they recorded diary entries. Dima's Habitat, day one. After breakfast, the crew prepares for what's called an EVA, or extravehicular activity. Two crew members put on spacesuits and leave the habitat to collect rock samples and map the surrounding terrain. I mean, the first time you go outside in a full spacesuit and the hood is closed and everything looks red and brown and yellow and there's nothing around you and you feel the ventilator from the suit it's a really big moment because you don't feel like you're not even Israeli, you don't feel like you're on earth After lunch, we start uh, again, second EVA. You are busy all the time. The only time that you could be alone is actually when you are sleeping. Day two. We woke up uh, at seven o'clock, breakfast or coffee. We ate mostly dried food that you warm up. After that, we start uh, planning for the first EVA in the morning. My name is Yael Yair and I'm a science officer. We had this problem with the generator. I called myself Scientific MacGyver because I had to invent and to fix and to solve so many things. The food you're not used to, the bed you're not used to. As a scientist, I shouldn't be too emotionally involved in my experiment. But because I was a part of the setup and everything, I worked really, really hard to make this mission happen. I cared too much. Everything feels like a life or death situation. When it looked like we're not going to have enough um, solar energy, I really struggled. And we sat down around the table during dinner, and then I just opened up to them and told them that I'm, I'm feeling stressed and I'm sad and I'm anxious and I don't know what's going to happen. You have to take care of every little problem as it arises because you can't afford for problems to get big in this sort of situation. It's a lot of stress. 
And they just reminded me that it's not the end of the world. If something's not gonna work, we still have other things. Just comfort me, was all I needed. Day three. Hello, my name is Karmita Vidan Spalter. We had a challenging day today because the weather was very rainy. Most of the energy we use is based on solar energy, but I'm dealing with problems very well. Everyone is well, with a good mood, and tomorrow is going to be a very sunny day. Day four. The desert sun is back. On the one hand, a blessing. On the other, a new problem. The habitat heats up quickly. I think it got like uh, 34 degrees inside. That's 93 Fahrenheit, with no air conditioner. <laughs> yeah, we didn't have an AC because it's a big consumption of electricity, so we didn't use You are all sweaty from the past days. What's more, the habitat doesn't have a shower either. Your hair is covered with dust because of the EVA, but you're also sweating. So we kind of showered like big bowls, like kitchen bowls. We would stand in one of them and we used a bottle of liter and a half water and we just showered with that. You wash only the important parts that are like the smell comes from there. I had a zit on the back of my neck for a week because I hadn't washed it. There's uh, almost zero privacy and uh, you need to really constantly be aware of other people's needs and, uh, and try to be as accommodating as you can. All the girls, we washed each other's hair. It's really intimate, like washing someone's hair. I guess like when you wash your children at the bathtub, it's kind of like you, you don't want the soap getting in their eyes and you want the water to be at a good temperature and you're, you're touching their head. It turns the conversation to a slower pace of conversation. So we just talk about our lives and emotions and friends and just being. I remember talking about how when I retire, I will open a bakery and uh, become like uh, what I want to be. <laughs> the days we did wash our hair and shower were like the best days. It felt really really okay to just be. No one was pretending to be better than they are. We were just human beings being humans. I have really good shampoo. It smelled like mint. Day five. My name is Iftach Kuriel. I'm the commander of the DMARS-03 analog mission to Mars. We had a big um, container of salt and it had this guy on it. You know, the picture of this, like, salt guy. Some of the girls were missing um, family, boyfriends, uh, going out, whatever. So they started at one point saying, you know... How cute the guy from the salt is. This salt guy is pretty good looking, you know, he's really cool, the salt guy. Like, everybody has this brand at home, but nobody notices the hot guy from the salt. We got jealous, me and Salman. He got jealous. <laughs> so at one point I took a sticker, we covered the, the salt guy, you know. You know, it was enough. <laughs> Day six, the midpoint. We've been here about one week now, and we have one more week to go. I'm feeling the distance and isolation uh, of being here. I think we know we're not on Mars, but we're also not connected to what's happening with our lives. It's like we're in a different time zone. We send private messages home, but uh, we usually get an answer within about a day. It feels like we're in a different place. And I'll keep updating. Thank you. Day seven. A little thing can really get you on edge. We got um, a text from the mission control asking, how was my uh, stomach ache? And I did have a stomach ache a, a day or two before, but I didn't uh, report it. How, wh why would they ask about my stomach ache? And we started, uh, you know, seriously thinking, is there a camera or a microphone? Is there something that they're not telling us about the mission? I was thinking maybe I did report it and I sound really stupid now asking, how did you know about it? You know, as if I'm some sort of idiot. Because of the isolation, the state that you are in is not your normal state. There is this kind of, um, I wouldn't say enmity, but a confrontational approach between us, the team, and them, the control center, it's not easy, not easy at all. 
day eight. Everyone's doing their jobs and food is kind of nice. Salman and I planned a fast EVA to check the antenna on the roof. We were very proud that we faced the situation successfully. We're holding the DMAR-03 Fetters uh, of Katan Championship uh, this afternoon. Everything is starting to be smelly after a few days, so we need to do the laundry in the same bowl that you showered before and wash dishes before. But at a certain point, you just don't care because you're all together in the same situation. Everybody smells. It's okay. Day nine. For the feeling like you are in a role-playing game, very immersive, and you know you are the star of this game along with your teammates, and it's all happening. You know, that's what it felt like in a good way. After breakfast, Noah and Yael go out for an EVA. We went to take uh, soil samples and we're walking in full spacesuits. I think it was the hottest day we had, and I remember just sweating in my suit. But this time, Something's different. A hundred meters away from us, there are people. People? The Martian landscape is no longer empty. Fifteen people just standing and watching us and laughing. You hear the yelling and, what are you doing? And you don't want to communicate with them because it's breaking the simulation. We were like, not talking to them, but uh, marking in the air, like, go away. Like, you can't be here. And they think we're filming a movie or doing something. I don't know what they thought we were doing. We saw them, they saw us. We contacted the habitat on the radio and then we just um, hide behind a pile of dirt and just waited for them to go away. It's so surreal <laughs> wearing a spacesuit and trying to do something that you've been doing for a few days now and you feel like it's okay, I mean, you're used to it, but then other people come and they ruin the fantasy. Like you're in an analog mission, but you don't feel like it's an analog mission, you feel like it's a mission. Day 10. Today I ran for the first time in my life a meteorology balloon. I know that my father would have been proud of me. He always told me, Kermit, you can do whatever you wish to do. I remember those words. Um, I, I remember those words and they are proud of me. He passed away a week before the mission has started, I know he would have prouded me. Um, I'm not sure if I'm happy or sad, but I think a little bit of both. I find myself looking at photos of the families um, more often as the time goes by. I don't know. I kind of miss home, miss my dog. So um, I hope everyone uh, back there at Earth are having a um, Good time and having a good week. On March 14th, the sun rises on the Martian habitat for the last time. This is the 11th and last day of Dima scientific mission. I was anxious because I wanted to go back to my life, but I was worried about going back to my life. After two weeks that your entire world narrows down to 50 square meters, then you go out and... <laughs> was really too much for me. It was not easy to leave that place. The realization that this experience was now really over and it was never coming back as it was, was tough. Yeah. It's really intense. It's really shaky afterwards. Catching air for the first time in a long time. You're there and you don't really think about it. And then you go outside and you feel the air on your face. You're like, this is what it feels like. After 11 days of isolation, the crew members return to their respective homes on Earth. And though it might not sound like a long time to be away, their old lives suddenly felt alien. And then I just stared at the ceiling, like trying to understand everything. In my room, I remember I was staring at the ceiling like for 
for hours. I felt like the city was mean to me because it was so loud and busy and lots of things happening. And when I came back to work, it was just a blur. I couldn't remember anything. And my boss, she wrote me like emails and I couldn't understand anything. So I just passed the time until I went home. After living amongst the stars and leaving her footprints on the face of an untouched planet, Noah found it hard to care about things as trivial as product manuals and company sales targets. The whole point of the experiment was for scientists to learn how a crew of Earthlings would fare on Mars. But it had taught Noah how to live here, on this planet. She now experienced her life on Earth through Martian eyes. And it just didn't feel right anymore. I felt like I could make my life so much better by doing something that I really want to do. After I came back home, I baked bread and it felt awesome. To me, it's really, really relaxing. A friend of mine, he left and he said, you're treating baking like yoga. I quit my job to be a baker. And now I bake bread for a living, like a small living, but a living. It's the first time in my life that I feel I'm not doing something because I think it would be good in the future. Even though it's harder financially and the, the hours are shit, it feels good to do it now. Noah wasn't the only one with an altered perspective. From the mission, you reevaluate everything. Ever since the mission ended, I read less news, I think. Because I, I don't want to. I don't want to know. It doesn't matter. I don't want to know. I can live as much as good without this stress in my life. Going on Facebook and Twitter is my job. Many people are connected 100% of the time. That's sort of an expectation today. And I realized during the mission that's something that I could do without. I try more actively to not be as connected. I learned to ask family members, friends, what they are doing in life more often after the mission. And while Noah is physically back in Jaffa... I'm still telling people that I've not fully landed after the mission. Do you want to come back? Like fully land on Earth again? Yeah. No, I don't think I want to. Zev Levi. Believe it or not, you too can visit and even volunteer at the DMARS Habitat. For more information, go to d-mars.org. Istanbul, Newark. Sofia, Dubai, 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 Kiev, Odessa, Newark, Los Angeles, Newark, Dubai, Dubai, London, Dubai, 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 New York, Dubai, Paris, Paris. Would you want to go to Dubai? Um, no, I don't really want to go, I have to say. Do you want to go? I mean, sure, but it's not like on the top of my list to go to Dubai. I think Same. Dubai is primarily filled with things that I actually don't like, like tall buildings and malls and luxury items and stuff like that. Yeah, that's how I imagine it. In any event, this episode was scored and sound designed by Yochai Meital and Zev Levi. Skylar Inman translated Chaya's essay into English, and Joel Shupak edited the DMARS story. Sela Weisblum created the final mix of the episode. Thanks to Abby Nushat, Scarlett DeJean, Anna Korea, Niva Ashkenazi, Judah Kaufman, Dr. Hillel Rubenstein, Jackie Fay, Hadas Nevinsal, and Alon Shikar. Thanks also to Wayne Hoffman, Sheila Lambert, Erica Frederick, Jeff Fagan, and Joy Levitt. Follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all under Israel Story. And while you're at it, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. All you have to do is go to israelstory.org newsletter. Israel Story is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Our staff is Yochai Meital, Zev Levi, Joel Shupak, Yoshi Field, Skylar Inman, Sharon Rappaport, and Rotem Tzin. Jeff Umbro from The Podglomerate is our marketing director. Marie Rude, Clara Fug, Michael Vivier, and Alicia Vergara are our wonderful production interns. I'm Ishi Harman, and we'll be back soon with a new Israel Story episode. So till then, stay safe, Happy holidays, shalom shalom, and yalla bye.
Oh, oh, oh. 